Jessica Garino was trying to get her life together. After suffering through an opiate addiction, Jessica enrolled herself in a treatment center to get help. The problem was she had moved in with an older man named Carson Cameron, who was a user himself and made it difficult for Jessica to maintain her sobriety. In late January of 2012, Jessica disappeared. Carson said she left in the middle of the night with no explanation, but his other roommates told a different story. Jessica Garino has been missing for over 10 years. All right, well, I'm Ashley Theraldson. I was I'm Ashley Hartman now. I am Jessica's oldest sister. She was very funny, a very kind person. Um, she didn't she didn't like to see anybody's feelings hurt. Very sweet, dependable. If you needed something, she was basically give you the shirt off her back type person. She did have a sense of humor and she joked a lot. And she had a great laugh. It was the kind of laugh that would make you laugh, even if you didn't think, didn't think it was funny. But she was a good friend to everybody that she met. I mean, And she didn't meet a stranger. She would meet somebody down on the river and, and they would be instantly friends. I mean, it was crazy. She just had a light around her. People were kind of drawn to that. Welcome back to Missing. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. I'm, I, I got to say this episode coming up really uh, uh, affected me in a way where I wasn't prepared for because it's um, it goes down that path, that story that we hear all too often. Uh, we'll get into that. Other than that, I hope everyone out there is doing great. Tim, you look like you're doing okay. How are, how are you doing? <laughs> I am doing well today, Lance. I am delighted that we get to work with private investigations for the missing on some of these episodes. And you can find out more information about PIs for the missing at investigationsforthemissing.org and also their social pages. Please follow them on their social pages. There are links in the show notes. Crawlspace Media's Jennifer Amell works together with some of the researchers from PIs for the Missing. And this one, Lance, is about the mysterious disappearance of Jessica Lynn Garino from Goldsboro, North Carolina, on January 23rd, 2012. And in this episode, Jennifer Amell speaks with Jessica's sister, Ashley, and also a retired New York Police Department Sergeant John Fariso. And real quick, before we get to this episode, if anyone has any information on the disappearance of Jessica Lynn Garino, that is G-A-R-I-N-O, they are instructed to contact the Wayne County, North Carolina Sheriff's Office at 919-580-4065 or the Irwin, Tennessee Police Department at 423-330-4604. You can also submit a tip through investigationsforthemissing.org by calling their line 866-331-6660 or you can email them at piftmtips at gmail.com. And a good review goes a long way in terms of us keeping things moving here. Please feel free to swing by wherever you listen to your podcast and please give us a five-star rating if that's the highest one available and a nice review. Put some kind words in there and we can continue this work that we think is pretty important. So thanks for that. All right. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. We're going to break for commercial quick here, and then we'll be right back with Jennifer Amell to discuss Jessica's disappearance. Please follow us on social media at Missing CSM. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. 
now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. Jennifer Amell, welcome back to the podcast. How are you today? Doing well. Thanks for having me. This case was a little different. Uh, it was submitted to private investigations for the missing, but it passed through Lou Barry, who reviewed it and spoke with another investigator that is volunteering for PIs for the missing. And they seemed to think that there was little an investigator could do in this case. And they thought that the best scenario was to raise awareness about Jessica's disappearance. And that's why it came to us. And um, I personally uh, researched this case, interviewed that investigator, Sergeant John Fariso, and Jessica's sister, Ashley. And you mentioned Lou Barry, and Lou Barry, for anybody who doesn't know, works with private investigations for the missing. He was a police chief for the better part of his professional career that's pretty much all he's done is worked in law enforcement so when you say something like Lou Barry worked with someone else another investigator and they decided that there wasn't much to do on the investigative front and it would be better to raise the awareness it's really coming from a, a place of experience uh, they, he, he wouldn't just write uh, somebody off like uh, without looking into it you know it wouldn't just be you know don't put any effort into this one uh, to, to have that come from him is pretty telling and you you said to raise awareness I feel like this can be a case and a story that we raise awareness for not only on the missing person front but also if you know somebody in a bad and we say this all the time if you know somebody in a bad relationship if you know somebody with an addiction this is also uh, a, a method to raise awareness for that as well domestic abuse substance abuse it's it doesn't go away if if you turn your back on a person you really need to pay attention and see where the like the earmarks are for somebody who's in trouble so it, it raises awareness on that front as well and you know, just because the word investigations is in private investigations for the missing doesn't mean that that's strictly investigating missing person cases. It's 
really uh, a, a layered organization that runs the spectrum of what goes into uh, and all of the factors that cause somebody to go missing. Absolutely. And well said. I think PIs for the Missing really approaches each family uh, with a holistic approach. And part of that equation is absolutely the, the investigation that goes into it, like knocking on doors, calling people, getting uh, you know case files and reviewing it for small details. But then the whole other part of that is giving resources to these families. And one of those resources is this show is missing, uh, where we do have a public platform to talk about issues surrounding a disappearance, issues like you talked about, Lance, addiction, uh, you know, domestic abuse within a partnership. Um, and those are all really important. But on top of that, I think uh, media exposure definitely puts pressure on people who may have information to come forward. I mean, this is an older case. Jessica's been missing for a little over 10 years now, and no new information has come forward. And this might be uh, just the right reminder that someone needs to come forward with any tips or information, or indeed if someone was responsible for Jessica's disappearance to have a conscience and finally come forward after all of these years. And Jessica has been missing since January 23rd, 2012 from Goldsboro, North Carolina. She is classified as endangered missing. She's female, white. She was 21 years old at the time of her disappearance and somewhere between 5'6 and 5'10 and 130 and 150 pounds. And as we mentioned, she does have a history of drug abuse. She has the following tattoos as well, swirls and stars on the top of her left foot, her name Jessica around her ankle, and a rose on the back of her left shoulder. Jessica grew up in Unicoi County, Tennessee. She was the youngest of three siblings, and her family describes her as a loving, free-spirited young woman who easily made friends wherever she went. As I mentioned before, I had the great pleasure to sit down with Jessica's sister, Ashley, and she talks a lot about growing up in Tennessee and what their childhood was like. It was fun. It was our parents trusted us more outside because we're from a big city. So there wasn't other than our street. We didn't really wander very far. So once we got here, it was kind of like, oh, it's, you know, free for all. You can go do whatever you want to do. Um, Jessica made friends instantly. Uh, Christina did too, our middle sister. And for me, it was a little difficult because I was already in high school and, you know, it's a little, little different at that age. I think we were close, but I think her and my middle sister, Christina were closer because they were only 13 months apart. So they were very close when we were younger, as we got older, it seemed me and Jessica kind of came together and created a a very strong bond. Um, I would consider her my best friend just because, I mean, she was just great and she was great with my kids and I mean, my kids loved her. So yeah, I mean, we lived together for a period of time as we were adults and we had moved out of our parents' house. And sometime in 2009, Jessica met a much older man, Carson Cameron. We mentioned him in the top of the uh, episode here. He was 52 years old at the time. Just curious what your thoughts are on that, the age difference. It's eyebrow raising, right? Like why a much older man would be interested in a young woman. Uh, usually the ulterior motive there is some kind of romantic um, affiliation. Um, and he took a, like a particular interest in Jessica. 
And as we go on to sort of describe their relationship and how it evolved, it was not romantic between the two of them. At least that's what Jessica had told Ashley. Um, I don't know what Carson's intentions were, but he definitely exerted an incredible amount of power over her because of the, the age gap, of course, but Carson also made him himself indispensable to Jessica. He ended up paying a lot of her bills, um, getting her involved in his business, which we will get into. So yes, um, this relationship is absolutely a red flag in Jessica's life. Here's how it started. We had actually both met Carson at the same time. Um, we had found this, it was, it was a trailer we had found and we had inquired about it. Well, the landlord was going to rent it to us and it was kind of on a dead end road and it was just this trailer and then a house and that was it. And we didn't know who lived in the house. Of course, the first few times we went over there, there was nobody home. We went over there to clean one night. This is before we moved in. And, um, there was these two guys that pulled into the driveway of the house. One was an older man and one I had recognized from high school. So we were kind of chit-chatting. They, you know, gave us like some extra supplies for cleaning and things like that, um, offered to cook us dinner. And we were like, oh, okay, that's great. You know, we kind of, we really didn't have a problem, I guess, because of the guy that I knew from high school, you know, I, I didn't know him well, but I knew who he was and he was friendly. So, you know, we were just, I guess, kind of trusting. Um, so that's how we all met. And then of course, after that, he was the one that actually lived in the house, the, the Carson. And so then he was just our neighbor and he worked out of town a lot. So he wasn't home a lot, but when he was there, you know, he was like, Hey, let's have a cookout. Let's go swimming. He, he was, I think he was 52 at the time. And I mean, he seemed like a nice guy. He seemed really young for his age. I was like, I've never seen a 52 year old, like jump off these huge rocks into the water below. I mean, that's crazy, but okay. Um, but I mean, he was a really nice guy. Um, and he took a liking to Jessica. I don't know if he liked her intimately or anything like that. Um, but she didn't have kids and she was free to just kind of do what she wanted to do. So he was able to take her places. And, and so they went to South Carolina a few times and New York and things like that. Um, and just kind of built this friendship. And Jessica went on many trips with Cameron, but one particular time she went away with him to New York city and came back addicted to heroin. And Cameron had been a known heroin user and dealer. And do you have any indication how Jessica's family felt about that? That she wasn't addicted to heroin before going to New York and came back addicted to heroin? Yeah, I mean, this beginning time period of Jessica experimenting with drugs was kind of subliminal for a while. Like she didn't, she wasn't outward about what she was going through. And Cameron himself um, always spoke in metaphors. He never said outright that he dealt heroin but Ashley started to notice that he would he would be gone often on quote unquote business trips. He dressed up. He she said he dressed in collared shirts and sweaters, which was just not typical of the area they lived in Tennessee. He would often go down to South Carolina, where he grew up in Charleston, and uh, what she came to find out is that Carson would pick up um, heroin in South Carolina, come back to Tennessee, and sell it. 
and he somehow involved Jessica in these plans. So during this trip to New York City, Ashley says when they when they got back, Jessica was acting a little strangely, and Carson was thought the whole situation was really funny. He actually took a video of Jessica strung out on the bed of this hotel room. She was upset because she realized how bad of a drug addiction he had on that on that trip. At this time, she did not tell me that she had also participated in, in that. Um, but she said that he just left the hotel room a mess. It was just stuff everywhere. I mean, his syringes and, and things like that, just all over the place. And then later on, he said, hey, let, let's cook some food. So we're like, okay. And he pulls out this phone and he's like, hey, look at your sister. And it was a video of my sister uh, sitting on a hotel room bed. And then that's when they told me that she had done heroin for the first time. And basically she looked like a zombie sitting there just kind of rocking and whatever she was doing. I don't, I don't even know that she knows what she was doing. They thought it was funny. I did not think it was funny. Um, that's kind of scary, but they just laughed and laughed. This is like a 30 minute video. I didn't watch the whole thing, but I was like, wow, you know, this, that's a long time to just kind of be sitting there videotaping this and, and, and it's not funny. And Jen also conducted an interview with Sergeant John Fariso, a retired investigative supervisor within the New York Police Department Internal Affairs Bureau and Missing Persons Squad. Yes, hi. John Fariso. I am private investigator here in New York City. I specialize in missing person cases, Ferris investigations. Before, uh, well, I used to work for the NYPD. I'm retired now. I did 20 years with the NYPD. My last five years were with the missing person squad. I was a sergeant in the missing person squad of the NYPD. We I handled about 7,000 cases a year. So I reached out to uh, private investigators for the missing. And uh, I know they had some cases. I was very impressed with their podcasts on how they talked about their cases. So private investigators, investigators for the missing, I helped on the Garino, Jessica Garino case. And I did some interviews and uh, I helped them out in the preliminary, which preliminary as in a cold case. And that's where we're at right now. And in September of 2011, Jessica mentions on Facebook that she's seeing a man named Damien. Is this a, like a romantic relationship? Is she dating him? Yeah, she was pretty serious about Damien. At least that's what Ashley said. They went to high school together. Ashley really approved of Damien. She said he was like a really kind uh, man and she she loved them together. Unfortunately, due to this like rather bizarre relationship with Carson Cameron, he was very possessive of Jessica and tried to like drive a wedge between her and Damien. And of course, Jessica's addiction is kind of ramping up during this period too. And she experienced a lot of mood changes. Um, she became kind of violent at times, which um, we know is common when people are addicted to something as strong as heroin, it affects your whole life. And unfortunately, Damien um, broke up with her because he just he just couldn't deal with that in his life at the time, which 
kind of contributed to Jessica falling further into the clutches of Carson since she didn't have this kind of stabilizing relationship in her life. Unbelievable. Do you have any examples of what Carson did to drive a wedge between them? Or was it just the feeding her the substances so that it would further alter her you know, personality and behavior? I mean, it definitely had to do with like feeding her addiction too, but he would also just like make barbed comments. He would get angry with Jessica if she was spending time with another man. I'm not sure if he like hated Damien personally or he just disapproved of any kind of male in Jessica's life. And based on numerous Facebook posts, Jessica seems to be going through a hard time in September of 2011. Ashley seems to think Jessica felt very overwhelmed during this time. And due to the mood swings caused by her addiction, Ashley and her sister Christina asked Jessica to move out. Yeah, so there's there's a whole series of posts that Jessica made on Facebook. She was a prolific poster on social media, which is, you know, worrying after her disappearance because that ceases entirely. But during the months of September to maybe December of 2011, she posts things like, once again, everything that's going good just goes right down the drain. When is anything ever going to go good for me again? So it really speaks to this kind of crisis she's in at the time and what kind of precipitated her move to North Carolina. Yeah, these posts are really tragic. You can just see the spiral that she's in. And once you're in the spiral, it's hard to get out of. When you post something like, things just never go good for me. I really think I'm cursed. I'm doomed. Just getting into that mindset is super dangerous without any influence of uh, heroin or any sort of opiate or any drug. You know, when you're in that depressive spiral, the more you think about how you're cursed and doomed, the more you start like welcoming that that feeling everything that goes wrong is because there's some external force that's causing you to be doomed and cursed uh and it's just it's just tragic that she had nobody to turn to personally like she put this on social media as a as a cry for help as a statement that things are bad in her life yeah and it's not to say that she didn't have her sisters to turn to like they were all really close but Due to her addiction and because she would get so angry all the time due to the mood swings and stuff, it became very, very difficult for her sisters to intervene and like even on a daily basis, like give her advice for, you know, a breakup or whatever. It was She would constantly just push back against her family. So she was really kind of spiraling out of control without the stability of like that intimate relationship with her sisters. In December of 2011, storiesoftheunsolved.com reports that Jessica moved to Goldsboro, North Carolina in order to seek treatment in a rehabilitation facility for her addiction. However, the decision to move was sparked by Cameron, and Jessica followed him down to North Carolina and ended up living with him and a few other roommates in a residence on Old Grantham Road. I can only say what I know now, because at the time, she told me a lie at the beginning, you know, that she had left with our friend Rebecca and that they were in North Carolina, which was believable because Rebecca did go back to North Carolina and live with her parents. And that's where her parents lived at the time. And so I thought, okay, until I ran into Becca and I was like, Hey, where's Jessica? And she's like, what are you talking about? I haven't seen her. And I'm like, what? So then at that point, I knew that Jessica was with Carson. 
And Jessica's family was happy to learn that she was trying to get clean, obviously. And Ashley wasn't aware that Jessica had moved in with Cameron, who continued to deal and use heroin, unfortunately. Jessica knew that her sisters disapproved of this friendship with Carson, and they knew that it was bad for her sobriety, too. I mean, how can you seek treatment for your addiction and then go home to a drug user and dealer who has temptations around the house all the time? I find that really, really difficult. And it actually speaks to the strength of Jessica's willpower too because Ashley had kept in close contact with Jessica after she moved like they talked every few days or whatever and it really seemed to Ashley like the mood swings had disappeared that Jessica was speaking like her normal self that she seemed sober that the treatment was working for her so it's it's really unfortunate that you know she had to go home to this person who was constantly trying to drag her back in to the darkness of addiction. And soon after arriving in Goldsboro, Jessica got a job at a local power plant as a fire watcher, which is kind of like a security position. And she liked her job and was happy to be working after a long time of being unemployed after she lost her job as a manager at Wendy's back in Tennessee. And during this time, Jessica was continuing to receive treatment at the Carolina Treatment Center on the 1700 block of East Ash Street in Goldboro, North Carolina. She was an outpatient there. Outpatient means she did not live at the facility. The Carolina Treatment Center bills itself as a comprehensive plan for recovery from opioid addiction. It offers methadone treatment and maintenance, as well as therapy services, social support programs, and new job skills needed to make lasting lifestyle changes. So it sounds like she was in a good facility as far as wanting to get clean and and the overall scope of treatment. Yeah, and it seemed to be working, too, according to to Ashley. I mean, she said they didn't really talk explicitly about how her recovery was going, but just judging from... Like I said before, the way Jessica was speaking, how she was communicating, she seemed happy um, and sober. So I imagine that this program was working for her. Uh, Jessica was receiving a methadone treatment, which is a drug that's used to break addiction to opiates, such as heroin. Um, And according to the UAMS Psychiatric Research Institute, methadone works by, quote, changing how the brain and nervous system responds to pain. It lessens the painful symptoms of opiate withdrawal and blocks the euphoric effect of opiate drugs. But methadone is also pretty addictive, and it's possible to overdose if not taken as prescribed, and it can put a lot of stress on the heart. Um, Some of the side effects of methadone usage include physical discomfort, which can also lead to mood swings and restlessness, some sleep changes, and even sometimes hallucinations or confusion. And I think this is important to mention because um, Jessica was, I think, going every day to get a methadone dose. So this is how she was living her life. Um, I mean, it was definitely much better than using heroin every day. Um, But if she was on methadone, and this is just a potential scenario, it's, it's not a fact. I didn't hear this from anybody. But if Jessica was on methadone and then she was tempted at all at any time before her disappearance to use heroin. The nature of methadone is that it lessens the euphoric effect of heroin. And so maybe in someone's mind who is trying to get that high back uses more heroin, and that could 
contribute to an overdose situation. Yeah, that makes that makes absolute sense. And and there's there are stories out there about people who overdose and die because they've mixed their drugs to get that oh that that euphoric feeling back. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. And despite the upheaval in Jessica's life, she kept in close contact with her sisters. On January 21st, 2012, Jessica called Ashley and told her that she was running out of money to pay her phone bill and would likely be in touch in a week when she got paid. Um, it was a Friday. It was a Friday evening. And she had just gotten off of work. Um, we were going to go out to dinner with some friends. And so I was like, oh, okay. So we... I think we talked for maybe about an hour, um, just about random things. I mean, all kinds of different things, I guess. Nothing real major, just, you know, chit-chat. And um, so I was just talking to her while she was getting ready. And we talked. We got off the phone. I knew she was going out to dinner with some friends. And that was that was the end of it. And I thought, well, I'll hear from her next week. Um, I did try to call her the next day just to see if her phone did run out of time, but it it didn't ring. So I assumed that it did. And like nothing seemed off at all during that conversation? Just normal? Yeah, to me it was. She was in a good mood. She was excited. You know, the work week was over. She was going to go out, have a good time. Um, her birthday was coming up in the next month. So she was pretty excited about that. She talked a little bit about, you know, maybe some of her birthday plans She's always trying to get me to come up there to get a job with her. She's like, oh, you'll love it. It's great. You know, the town is great. And I did not consider moving up there, but, you know, it was, it was something that she was excited about talking about, you know. Yeah. So Jessica had one of those like prepaid cell phones and she was working regularly at that power plant company, but I think she was just waiting for her next paycheck to like re-up the minutes on her phone. So Because she said this to Ashley, her alarm bells didn't go off when she didn't hear from her, like, after a week, after two weeks. And I think after a couple weeks elapsed without hearing from her, she started to get worried. And that brings us to January 23rd, 2012. That was the day that Jessica was last seen, and she was last seen at that treatment center in Goldsboro. It was one day, I believe in January, that she didn't show up to the drug rehab or the job. The family was calling. No answer. Um, the family eventually came to North Carolina and reported her missing. 
And about how many days had elapsed since she was last seen to when her family reported her missing? I don't have the exact days. It was uh, maybe seven to 10 days. So there was a a lapse in it. But that is never 100% because just because someone doesn't report to work doesn't mean that's the day they went missing. So it's never 100%. But seven to 10 days went between. They had contact call definitely within the same month of January, I believe. They had called, no answer. They didn't get much information from the roommate. So the sister or sisters drove to North Carolina, realized she wasn't there, didn't go to work. They had reported her with the Goldsboro Police Department. And there was also a report that Jessica was seen by a co-worker on January 25th, 2012, which was Wednesday. So is there any clarification to the discrepancy between those two dates? Yeah, so I, I asked Ashley and uh, Sergeant Friso about this quote-unquote sighting of Jessica at work. Um, it is not confirmed. Somebody might have been mistaken about the day. I mean, Jessica was waiting on that paycheck, right, at work. And it would make sense if she was waiting on that to even like up the minutes on her phone that she would have gone into work to get her paycheck. But her paycheck was never picked up. Jessica's family first reported her missing to the Irwin Police Department in Tennessee a couple of weeks later when she failed to get in contact with them. And when interviewed by police, Cameron said that Jessica had left without any warning in the middle of the night and he never saw her again. But Cameron's roommates told a different story. They said Jessica and Cameron left together and were gone for a few days. And when Cameron returned, he was alone. Yeah, big discrepancy between those two stories, right? I mean, I don't know how Cameron even got away with telling a story like that when other people had seen them leave together. I think it definitely put Cameron on the police's radar. But after speaking with the police this one time, he kind of clammed up and he wouldn't talk to police again. When they were interviewed, they told different stories to the investigators. They told one story that she left with the gentleman who owns the house. Uh, and another story was told that she did not leave with him, that he left without her. And it's proven that he went to South Carolina. Both stories have one having leaving with her to South Carolina, one does not. I would assume that when she went missing, it was at that moment, so right around that time. And Cameron grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, and has ties to the community there. Jessica has actually gone on a few trips with Cameron there, and Ashley suspects that Cameron would bring heroin from South Carolina to Tennessee to sell. Yeah, so I, I spoke with John Fariso and with Ashley about this trip in question around the time that Jessica disappeared. I mean, her roommates described Jessica and Cameron leaving together to go on a trip. Um, so it seems like they were they were going to South Carolina together for some unknown reason. And Sergeant Fariso says it is confirmed that Cameron went on a trip to South Carolina right around the time that Jessica disappeared. They had gone to South Carolina. Do you know whereabouts? Charleston, which would not be an uncommon place because Carson was born there. That's where he grew up, was in Charleston. So it would make sense that he would, I mean, not that it would make sense, but it would not be uncommon for him to go there mm-hmm. because from. Um, so they had went there and that was just according to his phone records. Um, her phone never left North Carolina. 
Okay, so her phone did run out of time, so it wouldn't have it wouldn't have been, I guess, working. And so the only thing that I can assume, because I don't know what day exactly they left. I talked to her on the 21st and I think the 23rd or the 24th is when his phone started traveling out of, out of state. But then according, like I said, according to the roommates, the both of them left together in Carson's car. And so it can only be assumed that she was going with him. And authorities discovered that Jessica had a food stamp card, also called an EBT card, that was used for a month after her disappearance. And records show that the card was used in Charleston, South Carolina, precisely where Cameron was purported to have been. There's an EBT card of hers that was used in South Carolina and North Carolina. For Usually it's people will use them at grocery stores, gas stations, uh, basic needs. Okay. And would you be able to use one of these cards without an ID? I'm not sure about that. That's, um, there was a lot of fraud with EBT. So I believe <laughs> um, that I could tell you in New York, there's a lot of fraud with EBT. Um, there's a whole, you could do a whole podcast on that. <laughs> so uh, I would say yes. Um, who checks and who doesn't? I don't know. But it can be done because I've seen it within my police work. And just to further emphasize Carson Cameron's criminal behavior, it dates back to 1988, and that's just from what the uh, research team has found. Uh, there's no telling what he's done that hasn't been put on the record, but he started with a possession of heroin, theft by deception in 1988, aggravated assault in 1991, theft of over $20,000, possession of controlled substance in Harris County, Texas. He was sentenced to five years. He served about three years in the Texas Department of Corrections. And then some petty stuff, 2000, shoplifting in Charleston County, South Carolina, 2001, petty theft in Polk County, Florida, aggravated possession of drug forgery, possessing criminal tools, receiving stolen property, identity fraud, theft, served about a year for that, and in 2008, unspecified criminal charges in Durham, North Carolina. And that's all stuff that's on the record, right? Yeah, so it really seems like based on this rap sheet from what I I did find is that Cameron has this like very long history of being involved with drugs, like possession as early as 1988. Was heroin even like in vogue in the late 80s? I feel like that was a 90s thing. I think it was right on the cusp. I think right around 90, 91, that's when uh, the, the heroin wave, I guess, became, I hate saying in vogue, but there's no other word to, to, there's no other way to say it. Yeah, it became the drug of choice, I think, in the early 90s. So if anything, Carson was, uh, you know, he was ahead of his time. Yeah, so drugs have long been a part of Carson's life. And I think um, if he is addicted himself, it maybe explains why someone might get involved with uh, identity fraud and theft, um, because you need to uh, support this habit in some way. And maybe that's why he got into dealing later on. The Irwin Police Department enlisted the help of the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, and Sergeant Farisa weighed in on why two state agencies were involved in the investigation of Jessica's disappearance how they do it, and I believe this is done throughout the country, and this is a problem with any 
if any investigator has a missing person case and they're wondering why there's two states involved, it's usually the fact that person resides in one state. So Jessica's case would be she resided in Tennessee, moved from Tennessee to North Carolina. So technically, even though she was only temporarily in North Carolina, her, her roots are in Tennessee. So when, when people traditionally run away, she was a little old to be considered a runaway, but if people run away, you go from where you went to back to where you grew up and lived. That would have been North Carolina to Tennessee. I don't believe this, that that happened. So North Carolina did the investigation while technically it on paper, which would go back to NamUs and all that is a case in Tennessee. So there's kind of a dual investigation, but the on paper, it's Tennessee. The main part of the investigation should have been North Carolina. And uh, for what I see, it was. I that's see. where that uh, that comes into play. And that's common uh, with missing person cases because of circumstances of people moving and becoming lost in a new location. Yeah, I, th I think we've covered a, a few of those cases. And I always wondered how that dual investigation worked, if there was like a clear line of communication between both agencies or if they were both kind of independent of each other. There's not always a clear line, and that is a problem that I, I don't, I don't know the answer to it. There's not always a clear line. So a lot of cold cases, when people will say, "This is when the inexperience of some people comes into effect," they'll say, "Those investigators did nothing where she lived. They did nothing." Well, people don't understand. There's two states involved, and sometimes not everybody speaks. I, I can't answer to why that happens. I'm always receptive to speaking to somebody else, but. It could be two two investigators investigations at the one time, and it could be I can't speak for other departments. One department may believe one's doing something while the other one's doing it. Sometimes, either too much gets done or not much gets done. Right. So yeah. that is common within these cases for that reason. And from there, unfortunately, the trail went cold. Although Sergeant Frizo has a striking theory about what could have happened to Jessica. Uh, yes, my theory is, I know there's others with other investigators. Now, like I said, I did not speak to Tennessee. They, if I speak to them, I might have a totally different theory, but this okay. is for what I have, is that this was an accidental overdose and someone close to her uh, buried the body. That's my assumption. Now, there's a little tidbit here that uh, was brought up. When she lived in Tennessee, she lived in an apartment with the same individual that she moved with to North Carolina, and there was an overdose in the apartment, which makes me believe that this was a, a high-level drug use going on at this house. And when EMS took the body away, he was overheard telling people, if this ever happens again, no one's ever going to know about it. That is, uh, that's an interesting statement. And I've worked cases in missing persons here in New York when there have been overdoses and people have covered them up because they don't want to get charged with uh, or looked at suspicion for what they're involved in. And unfortunately, them covering up doesn't give the family closure. I could be wrong on that, but that's how, if I had this case in the beginning, that's how I would, it's the angle I would have looked at. And that angle was looked at. And Jessica was an avid user of social media, particularly Facebook. And unfortunately, there has been no activity on any of her socials since January of 2012. And Cameron has refused to cooperate with the investigation and has since been arrested on other unrelated charges. So this kind of brings us full circle to what we said in the beginning. Uh, Sergeant Ferizzo is not actively investigating this case because he believes little more will come of it. 
with traditional investigatory methods. Uh, that is also the belief of Lou Barry. And what they believe will actually help is getting the word out about Jessica Garino. And that's why he was approached directly and Lou Barry of Private Investigations for the Missing uh, in order to help raise this awareness. And again, this is awareness not only for her disappearance, but for all of those circumstances that are all too common in a lot of people's lives that could lead to something similar. Yeah, I um, it's the belief of Lou Barry and Sergeant Fariso and myself, honestly, that this case can absolutely be solved with good, credible information. There's, there's nothing to say what happened or, or a whodunit type thing. It's, there's nothing there. And in your gut, do you feel like Jessica is no longer with us? I don't think so. Um, I have hope. But I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I feel like if she were, it's been 10 years, like she would, and I would hope that she would have reached out or, you know, reached out to somebody, maybe not even me, but somebody. I mean, there were so many, many people that she knew. And, you know, so I, I would find it really hard to believe that she's out there hanging out somewhere and just forgot her whole entire life. I'm wondering what closure might look like for you and your family. Oh, goodness. Um, knowing something, anything. Um, at this point in my life, and I, I can only speak for myself, I would take whatever answer I could get just to know. Um, you know, if she were out there, and now, of course, if if came back that yes she's deceased and um you know I'd want to know where she was because it would be it's hard to fathom that she would just be out there somewhere and people would just walk by her like she was just a, a plastic cup on the side of the road or something you know that that is hard to fathom and I don't I wouldn't wish that on anybody I wouldn't you know everybody deserves more than that you know even in death you deserve more than that you can't just be discarded um so any anything i think would be okay now i'm not saying oh yes i'll be fine if they come back and say she's gone no i would not be fine with that but if that's what i had then i could deal with that now at the same time i don't know how i would handle that because a part of me wants to say, no, she's still out there. So then it would, you know, it, it's almost like you want to know, but if you know, then it takes away all your hope. You know, you're, and you can't help it. Just naturally your brain just creates scenarios or all these different, you know, this could have been and this and this and this, and you come up with all these different ideas. And, but then you sit there and think to yourself, well, maybe she just met some real nice man and she's off living the high life in Hawaii. You know, I mean, that would be nice too. And then you could go smack her across the face because what have you been doing for 10 years leaving us out here like this? You know, so I mean, <laughs> the hope keeps you going. Um, but it is, it's hard. It's hard. You know, I have days where I feel better if I don't know. And then I have days where it's like, I need to know. 
you know, it's like I, I can't even move forward unless I know. But are you moved at all by like wanting justice or like someone to pay if there was a crime? That's hard to say because right now in my state of mind, I wouldn't even care what happens to the other person just as long as I know that she, if there, like if there was a crime, I, as long as you tell us, you can go on with your life. I don't even care about that. But then I'd say if it came down to that, then yes, I, I think I would want justice for that because that's not fair. Um, you know, especially if, if you've been hiding this information for all this time, why would you do that? You know, why wouldn't you just say, hey, here's here's the scenario, here's what happened. And so, but I feel like my desire to know where she is outweighs everything right now. I, I just wanna know where she is. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.